I look out and I see all the seats filled. People have to hand out some more chairs to accommodate all the people. That's called seeing with the eyes of faith, right? Amen. As you heard, Pastor Nick is away this uh, Sunday. He was spending time with his family in Arizona. I think about a month ago, his father had congestive heart failure and uh, came to. God touched his life, and he asked Pastor Nick to pray for him to give him more life, give him more days to be able to do, uh, enjoy his time here on earth, spend time with his family. So they're all over there. Thank Kathy and I think Heather and his daughter, they're all over there. So let's pray. So I'm covering today. Um, if you bought the full price ticket, you can uh, have it redeemed for the smaller price ticket for my message today. But um, it's real fun getting all these, uh, getting this message together. And right now I'm, I'm assuming a little malfunction there. But I put this together to, uh, what's well, difficult getting a word together, I'll show you a little background, is one, you want it to be what God puts on your heart, naturally. And then secondly, you want to as much as you can in there because I'm not here next Sunday speaking. So, you know, mixing with the series. Um, I'm supposed to probably not to be in the middle of speaking on Sunday. But um, you want to put as much as you can in here. And then another aspect of bringing the message is you don't want anybody to catch you off guard. So I always make sure that everything I take and every source I take, I'm ready for any of your questions after the service. Not great. Many of you ask me questions about the service, so I'm glad that you uh, trust me when I'm giving you the truth today. Be that as it may, I'm ready. But uh, that's what I do. I investigate from all angles and all areas. But this morning, I want to start by saying what this is right here. This here is the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. It is the Word that's true. It's full of narrative, it's full of history, it's full of song, it's full of poetry, and, uh, and letters. It's full of letters, especially in the New Testament. It is a story how man was formed into the image of God, and how that uh, man separated himself from God through sin. And it is the story of God's unfailing love and mercy who knew from the very beginning who would set things right again and repair the breach that sin caused. And that was Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen? Amen. It is also the story, it is also the story of the ugliness of mankind. Let me say, though, that because of this ugliness, there's a lot of ugliness in here. If you spent any time reading it, there's a lot of ugly stuff that man has done. But from an apologetic standpoint, from the standpoint of Using the word of God as a uh, beacon of truth is a good thing that ugliness is in there. If it did not, if it did not have that ugliness in there, it would be suspect. It would be uh, under intense scrutiny of could this be authoritative like it claims to be. See, most books and historical texts, especially if they were written by uh, kings and former rulers of old, would kill anybody that would say the truth about their reign. If you said anything that would besmirch their image, you would be cast out, cut off, and destroyed. But the stuff that was, if you wanted to start a religion, you would not have put a lot of the stuff that's inside the Bible. <laughs> People would be like, ah, that's not for me, no way, no how. But that's not what this book was for. It was not for the start of religion. This book was to show the word of God, and the words within are there for a reason. So, coming from that standpoint, you have to trust what this word says. You have to trust it and believe it, and know that God put this together for a reason. No other book in the history of mankind has matched the Bible. Not even close. Top scholars, top uh, journalists, top um, theologians, and even non-theologians, people who do not believe in God, will say this is the most incredible book ever written. Still to this day, it is still the number one bestseller. Not in the New York Times bestseller, <laughs> but in terms of volume, the 
they can never print enough of these books. When I went to China uh, to smuggle Bibles in from Hong Kong, they could not get enough of these. They just used, I think I only personally brought in a thousand, and they still wanted much more. You cannot outsell this book. In this ugliness, ugliness of mankind, we find stories of men and women who set themselves apart among this mankind ugliness, if you will. They chose to believe and obey God, and that, that allowed them to be recorded in this book. God wanted us to know about these individual people. It was Moses who said, if you don't go with us, we don't go. Abraham said, will you say I should go? I will go. And it was Joshua who said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And it was Deborah who told Barak, has not the Lord commanded you to move your armies against this uh, foe? And Barak said, that's right, he did. So men, you listen to your women who remind you of what God said. And, uh, and it was Abigail who stopped David from murdering someone. He was so angry at one point, and Abigail reminded him, didn't the Lord say, vengeance is mine? And then David said, you are right, you are right. You need to calm down, man, let the Lord take control. One of the famous ones I want to talk about today is the last one, is the King David. He has quite a resume. Shepherd, singer, songwriter, poet, musician, armor bearer, giant killer, and that therefore made him a national hero. He was a captain of the army. He was the king's son-in-law. Then he was a fugitive, a king, he became king, a prophet, a worshiper, a warrior, adulterer, a murderer, and a sweet psalmist of Israel. Quite a resume. This guy is probably the most famous king in the Old Testament. And we all know that he was what? A man after God's own heart. What is a man or woman who is after God's own heart? Early on, he was despised by his family. Jesse, that's where I got my name. Jesse was an influential man, and he was a great-grandson of Obed, who married Ruth. So he has this direct descendant from Ruth's line. And he wasn't a super wealthy man, but he was wealthy enough in that time because he was actually a chief guy of the Torah. Uh, not necessarily a scribe or a Pharisee, but he was the guy. If you wanted to know what the Torah was saying, he was the man you went to. So he was very high-esteemed, influential man in that area. And uh, he had plenty of servants. He had plenty of people who run his fields and run his flocks. Yet his youngest son, David, was out there in the fields, out there in danger every day from the lions and the bears that wanted to eat that sheep. So that says something about his status in the family. And there's a lot of, uh, Pastor Nick actually touched on it last week, I thought it was kind of funny that he brought that up when I was studying, but there's a lot of uh, other historical documents that assume, and it's possible, that David was seen as an illegitimate son, that his mother had slept with someone else, and David wasn't a true son of Jesse. That all changed when Samuel came along and said, I want to see your son. Now, picture the scene. Samuel was a prophet so feared by the land, and the people knew he was of God, that when he spoke, stuff happened. He was, he was, uh, he was like Elijah at the time. So when he came into the neighborhood of Bethlehem to speak with Jesse, they were all, it says right there in the scripture, are, 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 is everything okay? Are you here to kill us? Are you here to, you know, why are you visiting us? Because at this time, Samuel wasn't moving around much. He was more retired, he was older, but God had sent him that I wanted to anoint the next king of Israel, while Saul was still king. So here Samuel comes in, and everybody's a little afraid, but he says, no, I brought a sacrifice with me. Let us go sacrifice together before the Lord and have a feast and have a dinner. And then at that point, they all knew he was there to anoint a son, one of Jesse's sons, to be the next king of Israel. So here we go. We got the scene of, uh, of here's David. He's an outcast, not really loved. They, called all the other brothers forward who were not out in the fields. They were there present, probably dressed and looking appropriate, looking ready for the feast, and uh, David's not anywhere there. 
the psalm in Psalm uh, 69, David is actually speaking about his own house. And so listen to these words. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforter, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. So I want you to pick, I wanted to paint that picture of where David's coming from. Uh, the ages range from between 16 and 20 years old when Samuel comes to visit him. Some say 20, 16, 17, but somewhere around that range. And it wasn't until another 10 years after he was anointed before he finally became king after Saul died. So he's right at this age, and up to this point, he is not considered part of the family. So Samuel asked if there were any others. After he said, this guy, well, actually the first time he said, this has to be the king. You know, this guy looks perfect. He's got the physique. He's got the looks. He's got the height. He, he just, you know, looks like a king. And Samuel was rebuked by God and said, no, do not look at the outward appearance. And this is the first instance where we get the, the heart of David. He said, I'm looking for the heart of someone who is after my own heart. So Samuel asked if there were any others, and it was at this point that Jesse said, yes, there is one other son out in the fields. Samuel said, bring him. And uh, so we have in this counter the first time that his heart of David to be spoken of. And Samuel thought that it was to be the better looking one. But don't get this wrong. This isn't a story about God choosing the lowly, ugly one. But David was not ugly. David was actually, they said he was rugged and dreaded. So he had red hair or red sheep. He was bronze looking because he was out in the field all day. Taking care of the sheep and and uh, defeating the lion and the bear, so he was strong. He can't be a weak kid. And, uh, but he wasn't as big as his brothers, don't get me wrong, but he was not an ugly dude. It wasn't like God wanted to make an example. We were always looking at the outside. So David, from the very early on, knew, because of who Jesse was and his status in the neighborhood, the Torah. He knew the law, and he was intensely in love with God. Intensely. We read that in Psalms. We read that in First Kings, where it talks a lot about his life, he was very concerned about doing what God wanted. And in fact, God told Samuel, don't look at the one at the heart, uh, outside appearance, look at the heart. I have chosen one that will do what I want him to do. He will do my will. And that's very important, and remember that as we move along. So here was David, chosen and anointed, and he had an intense love for God and for the law. And he was not installed as king yet. So I'm fast-forwarding a little bit because you could literally write one of the books this big of just David's life. But for 10 years, fast-forward, and we have this uh, picture of what a man after God's own heart is and what a man after, what not a man going after God's own heart. So it's a, this, this, uh, a dual picture of King Saul and soon-to-be King David. David is separated from Saul because he's a man after God's own heart. The clear implication is that Saul is not. But Saul, however, was chosen, anointed by God, but chosen by the people. David was anointed and chosen by God. People did not choose him. People didn't think he should be chosen. Even Samuel thought he shouldn't be king. In any case, scripture, in two places, in 1 Samuel 13 and Acts 13, it does so, it references a man after God's own heart. But in 1 Samuel 13 is explaining why Saul is not a man after God's own heart. So it's showing in the negative sense. Saul is not a man after my own heart. Therefore, I am finding one who is after my own heart. And then in Acts, it gives the positive. It doesn't give a negative contrast. It gives the positive. And it says that here is a man, he is after my own heart. Saul was not after man's own heart because he had, Samuel told him, you have not kept his commandments. You have done things that were right in your own eyes, not right in God's eyes. David, which was, uh, he said, I just said, will fulfill my will and do my commands. The defining characteristic of being a man after God's own heart is doing what God commands and what he wills. It's really simple. It's doing what he commands and doing what he wills. But a man who is uh, ordered around, do this, do that, go to the front lines, wash those windows, 
is simply a servant, is he not? He's just doing what he's commanded, doing what he's told. So it's not just, it cannot be simply a relationship with God or being a man after his heart or a woman, simply by obedience. There is another factor, there is another part of that recipe. Let's continue on. If you look at the difference between Saul and David, it is this. Saul deliberately made his own plans and followed his own will, and he attempted to cover his sin by use of sacrifices, holy things, thus committing blasphemy on top of it all. And on top of that, all of it, he was unrepentant when he was confronted. Whenever he was confronted by his sin, he did not repent. David succumbed to temptation, or whenever he was led into evil, when he was confronted by his evil deed, he immediately repented and bitterly regretted his actions. Saul feared the repercussions of upsetting God, but not really didn't care about what God wanted, other than trying to keep his favor and blessing. He told the line, what do I have to do to make sure I don't lose the goods and still behave and act the way I want to? That is a man that's not after God's own heart. David actually cared about what God loved and wanted. His primary concern was not merely currying favor with God or securing blessings, but rather he actually wanted to love what God loved. Whatever God loved, he wanted to love the very same thing. David was vertically focused. His relationship was between him and between God. Saul's relationship was horizontally focused. His relationship was between man and how they thought about him. He was extremely jealous of David. He uh, got so bad that the spirit left him and he was an evil spirit replaced that spirit. So he was vexed and he was angry and he was, uh, you know, there are points in the scripture where it looks like he forgot who David was, and he was his song, song player and playing the harp, and then in the next chapter, he doesn't even remember who he was on the field when he defeated Goliath. And he, he was messed up in the head. <laughs> so the difference was David was vertical, Saul was horizontal. The relationship with God that we need to have, a man after, and a woman after his heart, has to be vertically focused. David was a gracious man, bearing with the failings of others eager to give his enemies a second chance. Twice, while his friends advised him to strike and down their enemies, David spared Saul's life in 1 Samuel 24. Though Saul opposed him at every turn, hunted him, he was a wanted man, and half of his psalms, the 73 or 74 psalms that David wrote, was how, how lonely he was. The very men that he was a captain of, uh, an army, were now hunting him down. He was hiding in caves, eating scraps. I mean, he, was, he used to be the national hero. Can you imagine uh, someone saving people from a burning fire? He would be a hero in the neighborhood. And then the next week, they want him and they're, gonna, they're trying to execute him. Huge contrast in David's life. David did not rejoice even at the death of Saul, but he wept for the king and his son Jonathan in 1 Samuel 1.17. David was uh, welcomed Abner when he defected from the foamy king Ish-bosheth and mourned for him when distrusting Joab, one of his advisors, struck him down in 2 Samuel 3. David was unnecessarily kind to Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 9 and uncommonly patient with Shimei's spiteful cursing. Later, David would pardon those who rebelled against him during Absalom, his son, Absalom's insurrection in 2 Samuel 19. Time after time, David showed himself to be unlike those in the past who lived to hold grudges and settle scores. David knew how to forgive, and more than anyone prior to Jesus, David loved his enemies. Like no other Old Testament king, David was willing to welcome rebels back to the fold and overlook the sins of those who had opposed him. When he built the tabernacle um, and brought the ark under it and said that we need to worship this 24-7, Worship was happening all the time, and it didn't matter who you were. You could be a Gentile or a Jew, a foreigner or whatever. You could all worship at the ark. That is someone who understood the love of God. That was a man after God's own heart. David was different, and as he was also gracious. When Nathan, however, when Nathan confronts David for his adultery and murder. David, after what he sees, what Nathan is up to, quickly laments, 
I have sinned against the Lord, he said in 2 Samuel 12. And when Joab sent the women of Tekoa to change David's mind about Absalom, his son, he listened. And when Joab rebuked David for lewd, loving, and treacherous son more than his loyal servants, David does what Joab tells him to. He was a man willing to listen, a man willing to be corrected. Man, uh, this, this guy probably, the scripture says, killed way more people than any other king, especially more than Saul. I mean, he had blood in his hands, so much so that he wasn't allowed to build a temple. But this guy was a warrior, you know, the most powerful man in, in all of Israel, reunited Israel, it used to be two parts, brought it back under together in one country, uh, finally defeated Jerusalem. Jerusalem was always in the hands of several different uh, peoples and made that the capital. And yet he was willing to have people come to him and say, David, you were wrong. You need to fix what you did. You need to make, you make it right. And you would repent and make it right. That is a man after God's own heart. Likewise, after his foolish census, again, I'm speeding through this, but I don't want to bog down a lot of stuff. But David did the census. He was told not to, and he did it anyway. And when he realized what he did, his heart struck him. And he confessed. And he said in very words, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. David knew how to forgive, and he knew how to repent, too. He never blamed others for his mistakes. He did not make excuses. It was my family's fault. They're treating me so terrible. And I just don't know what to do. I, I, uh, I just, I'm uncontrollable. He never blamed his family. He never used peer pressure or the demands of leadership. I'm a king. How can you expect me to do everything right? You know, he could easily say that. He did not use passive language or refer to his sin as a dysfunction. He did not lament over his sin simply because of the negative effects, like Saul. Saul was worried about how people would see him after he was called out and messed up. He saw his transgressions primarily in their vertical dimension. It was simply as an offense against the Almighty God. Psalm 51 describes that story. He never ran from the light when it exposed his darkness, and instead he admitted his iniquity and works to make things right. David was a man after God's own heart, and because he hated sin, not because he just hated sin, but he also loved to forgive it. I want to take a break about talking about David for a second. As I said in the beginning, what is this? This is the word of God. And in here is full of history narrative and stories uh, shot full from the beginning to Genesis to Revelation. We can get mired down and uh, stuck in the, in the nitty-gritty, the weeds, if you will, of character studies. And character studies is, you know, I want to study Moses and I want to study Abraham. And, ooh, you know, Abraham was just full of faith, you know. Paul studied them. Paul wrote Hebrews, the whole chapter on faith, and how these people stood up and despite the odds. And, um, you know, oh, I want to read about Sarah, you know, how she laughed and thought it was crazy that she would get pregnant. Or read the story about Hannah and how she uh, yearned to have a son and finally had Samuel. Uh, there's all kinds of characters in there. Rahab, the prostitute, who saved the spies and let them out the window. We can get stuck in here and be like, we want to be like these people. You know, we want to be full of faith and, and, and mighty and, and uh, you know, all those things. But if we get too lost in those character studies, if you will, we'll miss the picture. We'll miss the point. We'll miss what the Bible is trying to tell us. And it's the story of the redemption of mankind. It's the story of what Jesus did from the very foundation of the world, from the very beginning. It is stocked full with character studies, but we can easily get lost in this. Think about how we came to be in Genesis. God said, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be. And bang, bang, bang. Like, I want to grab it out of the hat. Things were created. And he did it in succession. You know, we needed to have the water first before I make the fish. And we needed to have the plant first before I make animals so they have something. All these things he did. And then when it came to man, he saved the best for last. And he said, let there be man. And then there was man. Right? And then he 
Ladies, I'd like to be women. That's what he said. He said, he said, he formed you from the earth and breathed. He didn't breathe in the animal's mouth. He didn't breathe in any bird's mouth. He didn't do any of those things. He breathed into man. And then from man, he formed women. And then he said, let them make, let us make them in our image. You were designed and formed, not created, into the image of God. That makes you, I couldn't put a good verb on it. That makes you supremely unique, supremely special. The plan was all set before it came to be, and we were designed to be in communion with our Lord Jesus, to do what he commands what he wills. But the difference is not in coercion. If I don't do this, God will strike me down. Like a servant or a slave or someone who had a job. If I don't do this, I get fired. I have to do this. It's, it's my job. But your relationship with Jesus has to be out of love. It has to be out of a willful willingness, a strive, a drive to follow after his what better example of God could there be than the life of David? God didn't just walk him his enemies in. He dies in their stead, Romans 5. He's always eager to show mercy, always willing to give traitors a second chance, the man on the cross. You, today you will see me in paradise. And yet God is not soft on sin. He exposes it and calls us out on it to exterminate it. John 16 and Colossians 3. But of course, God, unlike David, is never guilty of his own sin. He showed his condescension not by humbling himself before a heated rebuke like David, but by humbling himself to take on human flesh. Imagine what a God had to do to take on human flesh. He is, is undignified, if you think about it, but he had to do this. And takes up a cross and dies for us. David was great, but not nearly his as David's greater son, Jesse. I'm sorry, Jesus. <laughs> so what does it mean? What does it mean to be after God's own heart? It is to do what He wills. To be a man and woman after God's own heart is to do what He wills and what He commands in love. A great example of doing something in love is marriage or a really good friendship or uh, parent to their children. We do things because we love them. We do things, um, life, life would be terrible if we didn't have the least the bare minimum rules. So the bare minimum rules is to be nice, don't be a turd, treat people with respect, and be nice, right? If they ask you to do something, be nice, do something, be nice. That's just the simple bare minimum. But life would be chaos. If we didn't at least have the bare minimum, at least a sense of duty, you know, a sense of, I want to do this, but I know it's right to do this. But there's another level. There's another level. You doing something because you love that person and want them to do it is a completely different position than doing it because you know you have to, or you're bound by this vow or, or promise, if you will. Um, like I said, it's very necessary to have those things. Don't say, well, I don't really love I don't really want to do it, and I don't really love that person, so I'm not going to do it anymore. It's not what I'm referring to, but if you want that deeper a person after God's own heart, there has to be a love and a desire to want to do that. There has to be where you are unashamed and unrestrained in your relationship and your love for God. You are not ashamed to be uh, walking around with your wife or your significant other, stand before him and say, this is my wife. That's my wife. I'm not ashamed. Even more so with Christ. I am not ashamed to be a follower of Christ and to be a Christian and to share my love for Christ with others. That's the love. Of all the, of all the character studies and introspection and investigations and time spent on studying mankind, all the time used on examining family dynamics and the wives and the hows, and it was this grandfather and that grandmother, and this horrible deed that happened, and this thing, and that, so forth. And 
We could spend so much time examining all that. That's why I'm this way. All the time investing on dealing with sin in our lives and observing the sin in others. Look at you, you know, and oh, I'm so horrible. Keep sinning and keep messing up. Do you know what David's last words were to Solomon? I rarely ever read that passage. But in 1 Kings 2, David's time is to die. He knows he's going to die. 1 Kings 2, first verse. When David's time to die was near, he told his son, Solomon, I am going the way of all the earth. I'm going back to the dust. Two, so be strong and show yourself to be a man. I love that. He told him to be a man. Don't be a wimp. And then he says, do what the Lord your God tells you to do. Walk in his ways. Keep all his laws and his words by what is written in the law of Moses. There's his love for the law again. Then you will do well in all that you do and in every place you go. Those were his last words to Solomon. Then he continued on about taking out some of David's enemies. But his last words, his last words were, well, you know, it's interesting. You think, well, how can David be a guy after his own heart when he wants to, like, take out these you know, people? And one thing we have to separate is there's, there's, there's national policy and then there's personal policy. Okay? So on a personal level, David committed adultery and then he murdered her husband so that he could keep her. On a personal level, he committed an immoral act and he was called out on it and he suffered for it. On a national policy, he's the king of Israel. He's the king. So he has national interests. And that's what the problem is today. People want to make personal policies, morals, and make them national policies. Like, uh, you know, having a mixed bathroom instead of male and female bathroom. We can do that already personally. We can understand that this person doesn't know where to do whatever, and we can show compassion. But to make it a national policy, now you have step over the line. So does that make sense? So David, as a king, had to destroy his enemies because he had the people to worry about. He had to send soldiers into war or lead them as a captain and commit all this murder, if you will, and war. But as a king, that was his right. And as a king, he had tons of women, concubines, and servants, and all that stuff. That's what you had to do. That was the job of the king. But on a personal level, we can say, you know what, that's not right. That's kind of just, you know, how do you be devoted to so many people? And that's what was eventually the breakdown of Solomon's kingdom. He started out real great, and then halfway through, he fell apart. So going back to Solomon, Solomon's last words in Ecclesiastes. So he hears the word from his father, and then in Ecclesiastes 12, he says this, Now that all has been heard, after he's saying it's all his powers, all his vanity, now all that has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. The same words that his father told him on his deathbed. For this is the duty of all mankind. He uttered the same words after David said. After living a whole life ignoring what David said. Always getting into idolatry and trying this out and trying that. Solomon was a sampler. He wanted to sample the goods of everything. And after a while, lost his zeal and his heart. He was not fully a man after God's own heart. Man is nothing but a poor substitute for how we should live. So much time is wasted. I like to separate the categories of living, especially what I'm talking about today, is two things. Sin management and relationship management. Anything else outside of managing your relationship with Jesus, with God, just sin management. I'll say it again. Everything outside of managing your relationship with Jesus, outside of that, is just sin management. Now, let me clarify that. Of course, you're managing your household, managing your kids, managing your life, your job, all the things that you have to manage. You know, there's a lot. Uh, what are we going to buy this week? What food do we need? All those things. Just pop it all, just pile it all on the way. But we lug this thing around, and we have to manage all these things. Manage your kids, and uh, manage your relationships with your family, with your spouse, so forth. All those things, all those things, are all utterly, believe it or not, useless. It's just useless. It's just useless. 
eventually it just becomes simple. You have no pleasure or joy that this gift can do. I really rubs you on. You wish you were doing something different. And that just makes it worse. It makes it worse. And then pretty soon you're managing that sin. And you're managing that one. And then it becomes just this cyclical, sick cycle of sin management. Relationship management with Jesus, first and foremost, will make the management of all the other things way different. Different focus, different perspective, different goals, different tools, different uh, you know, Tony and I have had discussions about raising our kids and the responsibility of that, you know, just the responsibility of a father and how important that is. And we can lose sight of that really fast. That was on Tony. I didn't mean to say that. I said it. I know that. <laughs> and um, I don't know what the words is now. But uh, I lose sight of that. And two weeks go by, you just forget what your job was, what your responsibility was, because I was just managing my life. I wasn't managing my life. I was in sin management. When David was up in the building and he saw Bathsheba taking a shower and realized she couldn't afford shower curtains. And uh, <laughs> people say, like, why was she out there naked, blah, blah, blah. Look, that was the era. People did that all the time. Nudity was not an issue back in those days, in that time. So it wasn't the fact that she was naked taking a shower. It was just the fact she was a woman that caught his eye and he behaved foolishly. That's all it was. It wasn't because she was trying to, you know, whatever. So she saw, he saw that. He concocted this idea, brought her in, laid with her, and got her pregnant, and, uh, and then decided to kill her husband. And so in that moment, he did sin management. Oh, great. Now she's pregnant. What do I do? Well, get rid of the husband. But I'm, a, I'm a king, so I can send him right in the front lines and you know, make sure he gets whacked. Nobody will know, and everything's good. And he gets into sin management, and he paid for it, don't get me wrong. He still, he lost that child. He lost, after a week after the birth, it died. God said that his sword would never leave his household. So at that point, his son Absalom tried to defect and take over the kingdom. Um, and the nations of Israel that used to fear the Lord and wouldn't dare mock Israel. After that event, after what David did, they mocked Israel all the time. And in fact, scholars have seen it is still going on to this day because of David's sin. So there was a price to be paid for that. He paid a heavy, heavy price and with a blessing. But I don't want to get a whole ahead of myself. So everything outside of that. So does that make sense? Yeah. Outside of the relationship with Jesus, it's just sin management. You're just managing the world, to living in, you know, in sin. So some of you are probably saying, but Jesse, I thought we were talking about David. Yeah. And every time he took his eyes off managing his relationship with God, he got sinful and he messed up. When he was focused on God and his life around him, it was still crazy, but he was chasing after God's heart. Don't ever tell someone, look, become a Christian and life will be great. <laughs> Maybe in America, in certain places, but it just doesn't, it's just not life will be crazy, your life will be hectic, but you're chasing after God's own heart. You're receiving the promises that he has given you. Some say, but he was an adulterer and a murderer. How can he still have that man after God's own heart title? After that, he should have been, you know, there should have been no more record of David. In fact, you shouldn't have put David in the Bible at all. He should not have been in there. The guy was a murderer. He murdered that woman's husband. Yes, and he suffered the loss of his child, as I said, strife in his house, and the nations that defied Israel intensified. The sins he committed deserved death. You ever thought about that? Adultery and murder were uh, punishable by death. As a king, that was tricky, but he was spared because of his repentant heart. God said, I have heard you, and I will spare your life from what you did. Remember the story of Nathan. David was angry for something far less worse than what he did. Nathan told the story of the rich man stole from the poor man and made the poor man suffer. And David was righteous indignation said, that man must die for doing something like that. And David said, you have just decried your own person. You are speaking about yourself. And David instantly realized what he was talking about. We are guilty of that too. 
We read these stories and we instantly cast judgment. Like I just said, how could David be even, even be in the Bible? Why did they put in there uh, what Esau and Jacob did? What Lot did with his daughters, and uh, you know Abraham lying and afraid to tell people that was his wife and said it was his sister. All that stuff. Why is that all in there? Because that's the ugliness of mankind. I can't wait to tell you the end of my message. <laughs> so the point of this is that we are all guilty of death until we receive the atonement of Jesus' blood. When Jesus walked the earth and they were all casting their judgments, he said, "You commit adultery by looking at it." You commit murder in your heart when you think about murdering somebody and wanting that person to be dead. He changed the whole dynamics of it on his head. And they realized the law can't save us. Even though we're keeping it, we're still violating the law. That was what David understood. So this whole story, this whole story, as I come to an end here, is similar to Jesus. Both were born in Bethlehem. Both were mostly unknown. Who is this? Who is, what is, isn't this the carpenter's son? And don't you have any other sons? Yeah, we got this one over here. Matthias. Both suffered for being devoted to God. How many times they wanted to kill Jesus? And they said, now is not the time. You will, but I'm not ready to give my life up. And David ran for his life for 10 years, hiding, afraid of being all done. David had a sword. <coughs> Mighty man, a mighty word. Jesus had authority. David was after God's own heart. And then God said, This is my son who is speaking of you, with whom I am well pleased. Both chased after God's heart. Both wanted only what God told them to do. Jesus was a direct descendant from Solomon. Joseph was a direct descendant from Solomon. But the difference is that we have Jesus, of course, is that he is without sin. Without blemish, without spot, and he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Think about that, that Jesus was not sinful coming from a woman. He would only be sinful if he was brought, he would come from the sins of a man. Isn't that awesome? We have it so much better than David. We have Jesus, and we have unfettered access to the throne of grace. Jesus, uh, David died of old age. He, and then life moved on quickly to Solomon. He got to live, I want to say he was 70. But he got to live to be an old age. See, that's where I should have studied, because you guys may ask me after the service. How was it David when he died? forgot to do that. But life moved on quickly to Solomon. David was forgotten. He was remembered for his great deeds, stuff like that. But that was it. Call on David. See you later. Jesus died of death that in our stead broken and beaten for sins that he did not commit, and at the end he gave up his spirit after he asked God to forgive those who know not what they do. He forgave us. The mockers, the scorners. He went there with joy, knowing full well what he was supposed to do. He knew he wasn't going to live a long earthly life like David, but he knew that he was also a king, not a king, with a physical sword. Peter thought he was, he used his sword. He went to Calvary so that we would all be equipped with our own swords. You all have a sword now, just like David, and it's the sword of the Spirit. It's the sword of the Spirit that cuts and divides and gets right to the meat and the marrow of the ugliness of mankind. He went to Calvary to declare us all sons and daughters of the Most High King. We are all sons daughters. We are all kings and queens of this most high God who is seated on high. Nothing separates you from the love of God, provided that we accept that truth. And he went to prepare a place for us in the kingdom of heaven. It was prepared for us and it's ready for us to go there. And he forgave those who mocked him. He died for those who were in sin and he made a way to deliver us from death. Let's forgive. Let's start today and forgive. Let's be like Jesus, but also like David, who forgave his enemies, who gave people a second chance. Let's forgive. And let's spend less time on sin management, managing our sin, hiding it, um, using a facade of spirituality, 
we all try to be something that we're not quite there yet. But we're embarrassed, we're afraid, you know, to let someone in our closet. Um, this is not a call for us to, to be ugly in the snap of the finger. But we need to be ugly in front of God. We need to be ugly in front of God. Let's manage with our relationship with Jesus instead, and chase after his heart. Let's live a vertical life. Your life, your spirituality, everything you have with God is between you and God. Be honest with him. Tell him who you are. Tell him what you struggle with. Tell him what you are. Don't hide it in front of God. David never hid. Adam hid. He heard his voice and hid. David never hid. When he called out, he repented and changed. When uh, Jesus Let's go to John 17. I just thought of that. When Jesus, when Jesus knew what he was going to do, he knew it way before anything. So there was no, like, they did, uh, we need a plan B. Uh, Adam screwed up. You know, crap. So Jesus, at some point, you're going to have to come into this thing and fix things. And, uh, and then we can get everybody back on. There was no, no second plan. So Jesus knew from the, he was, he was born for a time, just at that time, to do the duty, to do something that he wanted, that he knew God had called him to do. With, with trepidation as a man, as a human being, but with joy in his heart, knowing what this could accomplish. When he died and was raised again, he defeated the spiritual army of death and slavery could not get out from under. And now we have access. And that instantaneous moment changed everything. But in John 17, he says this prayer that I love. I read this chapter all the time. Let's start in verse 22. I have given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you loved them as much as you loved me. So the world would know that you loved them. You know how much God loves Jesus? That Trinity, the Holy Spirit, Jesus and God. You know how much that love is? I, I don't. It's, it's unbelievably intense. It's unbelievably unreal. That you know the Bible struggles, even the Bible struggles to display what that love is. But then he goes on to say, Father, I want these whom you have given to be with me where I am. I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. You guys, we all, you, you all, are Jesus said, I want them whom you have given me. We have been given. We are a gift. He wants us. To, he wants to, I said that a couple weeks ago, when we, when we get a gift, Arthur gave me this watch for Christmas, you know, you want to wear it. You want to, you know, display it. I love this watch. And you want people to know that you got this beautiful watch that your wife gave you. The same way with, with Jesus. He wants the world to know that you were gifts given to him. You were his a, a prized possession. And he's like, awesome, you guys are just great. This watch is awesome. I'll just throw it in the drawer. Because it's one of my records. I might scratch it or something. That's it. That's not why Aubrey gave me this watch. She gave it to me so I would know when it's time to be home. <laughs> <laughs> gave his watch as a gift so I could wear it and I could display it. Jesus wants to display you as a gift of his love to the world. You are a gift. A gift that was given to him. Then he goes on to say, then they can see all the glory you gave me. Stop there. 
Then they can see all the glory you gave me. See, when you pursue God after his own heart, you get to see the glory. When David pursued God with all his heart, he saw his glory. He penned it down in Psalms. He's like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. You know, he was dancing naked, completely unashamed. And his wife, you know, rebuked him. What are you doing? Uh, that's for a while. And the tabernacle, he said, we are going to worship 24-7. He should not have been doing that. He was not a Levite. He was not a priest. And he should not have been anywhere near the ark for fear of death. And he did it. He only came that did it. Why? Because he was chasing after God's own heart. When you chase after God's own heart, you are allowed to be near the ark. You are allowed to be in the presence of God. So he said, and they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me before even the world began. Even before the very, very foundations of the world, Jesus knew God's love. And then that love, that unbelievable, unexplained love, decided, let us form so much willing to give it. I mean, all through the Old Testament, in spite of the ugliness, there were instances where God just gave it. He was so full of it, he had to. Even though he despised the sin and called it out, he still had mercy and grace. On Nineveh, of all places, not even in, like, his own people, the city of Nineveh was spared. Talk about a God that loves. And then, along comes Jesus, Repairs the bridge, rips the veil, and says, you can come and experience the glory and, and the love that I have for you. You are special. You are unique. A unique creation that wasn't created by someone. So let's stand on our feet. And, uh,